What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 130 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to don't be a jerk. Don't answer your question first. I'm not answering your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. And you can always reach us by emailing thebeardvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, do a bit of follow-up, and then strap on our goggles and climb 173 feet up a ladder in order to break the Guinness World Record for highest dive into a mailbag, where we will answer listener questions, comments, and concerns. Not even a single stumble on that one, Paul. (laughs) I cannot trip you up. As as I started reading it, I like looked down a little bit, and I was like, I have no idea what I'm about to read. I see the number 173, and I have no idea what that pertains to. Because the current world high dive record is 172 feet. Yes, oh. I looked it up. <laughs> I also like typed that out and then hit it at the bottom of our little shared Google Doc and then s- pasted it in right before we started recording <laughs> and still couldn't trip you up. Ne- next time, Andy. Next time. I'll get you. I'm going to just start changing the words as you're reading it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Paul here. Sorry for a quick interruption. You may have noticed that my audio quality was a little bit lower than normal, and that is because as I was recording, unbeknownst to me, while I talked into the microphone, the audio was actually being picked up through the laptop speakers. So after two hours of recording and discovering this, you can imagine I was pretty bummed about that. But I think it's all, you'll, you'll be able to understand everything. I'm going to work a little bit of editing magic to make it sound a little bit better, but I just wanted to apologize in advance, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. So let's get back into it. All right, Paul. You know what? You know what today is? What, what is the what, a mailbag episode? Today is mailbag day. It is mailbag day. One of my favorite days every ten weeks. Yeah, and every mailbag episode must start off with some winners. So, if you aren't familiar, every mailbag episode we choose three random winners who have left written iTunes reviews on our podcast page. And we will send them a Bearded Vegans button and sticker. So we use a random number generator to make sure it's all fair. Uh, we don't send people, you know, we, we only pick winners that we haven't chosen before. So, Andy, who are our, who's our first winner for this, this mailbag? All right. Start that drum roll. The first winner is Shanna Galen. The second winner is S. Spusiglio? S. Busiglio? I think it's S. Busiglio. S. Busiglio. Thank you, Andy. Espusiglio. <laughs> and our third winner is CatFanatic45. Great name. Who in their review said, we do a great job of staying on track and not straying away from the topics, which made me think, is CatFanatic listening to the same podcast that we're creating? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of editing magic that goes on, too. Just yeah, slicing okay. out all those <laughs> off-topic comments. Yeah. So anyway, if you are Shanna Galen, S. Busiglio, or CatFanatic45, send us an email, thebeardvegans at gmail.com with your address, and we will get a button and sticker in the mail for you ASAP. And thank you for writing your reviews and giving us a rating. It's something that is an easy way for people to help boost the profile of the podcast 
it makes us feel nice reading those five star reviews. Yeah. <laughs> Not so much the one stars, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> what can you do? And this is uh, this is an ongoing contest. So once you write a review for us on iTunes, you are entered in perpetuity until you win. So get them in now for the next mailbag. And if you haven't won yet, your, your chance will come someday. It will. It will. Maybe. Maybe. It has to. It has to come eventually, right? So, so Andy, you've been eating some good food. You've been in my neck of the woods, ish. What have you been? What have you been having? I was close. I was one major city away from you. I was in New York City, and I finally got to check out Mother of Pearl, which is a place that I've been wanting to go to for quite a while. And it's kind of like a tapas style place, but I actually found the portions to be pretty big for for that type of restaurant. So I was very pleased with that. Everything I had was pretty good. And the one thing that really stood out was their avocado and ricotta toast. And I feel like avocado toast is kind of, you feel like it's this boring thing. Don't say, don't say, I knew you were about to say that, Andy. I love <laughs> avocado toast so much. Sometimes I, I crave it. You're so basic, Paul. <laughs> so this avocado and ricotta toast was on sourdough and it was this thick cut sourdough it was very soft. It was I would say it was almost barely even toasted, which was was a little disappointing when I when I picked it up and felt it, but then it really worked well with everything else that was on it. So it also had the avocado, it had this ricotta, I assume some sort of nut like cashew-based ricotta, which was just sort of a spread across the whole thing, the avocado on top, had some black lava salt, and then what really pushed this over the top was that there was a sriracha maple syrup. And that was sort of drizzled on the plate, and then the the avocado toast was put on top of it. So the result of this, it was almost like a dessert. And I actually found out that this used to be on their dessert menu, and then they moved it over to the savory section. Interesting. So it was kind of like you were eating French toast almost. I love me some French toast. Yeah, and it was just so delicious. I would go back just for that that avocado and ricotta toast alone, so... That was a mother of pearl in New York City. Fun, fun place to dine. Paul, what went in that beautiful mouth of yours this week? So maybe for the first time ever, Andy, I'm going to beat you in the number of places that I've gone to in this oh, past no. week. <laughs> uh, so the first place I went to was this place, Kettle Black, which I had seen people, a few people post about it online. And the reason I wanted to go was because they had the, the bagels and locks, the vegan locks. And I was like, I don't think I've ever had locks in real life. I've been seeing people posting about locks, vegan locks for a while now. And I was like, you know what? I want to try this out. So I went to this place, the Kettle Black. It's not an all-vegan place, but they have quite a few vegan options. It's it's like they don't have that much food in general. They have bagels and bread and, you know, they have vegan cream cheese. And th- th- what they do have that I, that I didn't order, they have vegan croissants and some other French pastries. I nibbled on one that my, one of my friends got and it was very, very good. I might have to get one next time for journalistic purposes obviously to report back on it <laughs> for science mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you should what... bring along droopy dog because you know he loves bagels and bread <laughs> <laughs> but what i did get and i believe i posted a picture of this on the instagram was a black salt bagel with the vegan locks and cream cheese and the, so the bagel i don't know if it had like charcoal in it but the bagel itself was completely black and I'm I'm going to say this, Andy. I think I was blown away by the bagel and just – I was like, oh, these locks are pretty good because to <laughs> me, it falls under the – and that's not a that's not a 
a I'm not throwing throwing anything bad at the kettle black. I think it's just the general trend of carrot locks in general. It's this for me it's the same thing as coconut bacon. It's a type of thing where they're like, "Hey, we can make we can make this thing look like this other thing, so therefore we must make this thing." And so just because you can make carrots look like salmon, look like locks, I feel like that's why people use carrots for it. So to me, it didn't really taste it didn't it did not taste like salmon at all, not that I really remember what salmon tastes like. It was still good, but I wasn't blown <laughs> but away. But I knew it wasn't that. I knew it wasn't that. Same thing with coconut bacon. It tastes nothing like bacon to me. So that's a whole nother that's a whole other thing. But the 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 star of the show, the mother of the pearl, was the this bagel. <laughs> And it was so good. This bagel was so good. And all of the bagels that they had, they were like gourmet bagels. And I want to go back there and just eat all of the bread that they have. So I will definitely be making another trip there. I'll, I'll honestly probably get the, the cream cheese and lox again just because it was it was a good combo. Maybe I'll just get the cream cheese. Maybe I'll get one of those croissants. But check out the Kettle Black. It's in like northern Philadelphia, which I don't find myself – there too often anyways because it's a little bit of a trek but it was very delicious paul i don't think your argument holds up though because i don't think you can make coconut look like bacon again but why I, it's like little sprinkles of coconut i i why i just i still don't understand why coconut bacon is even a thing why do they why not that why it's a thing why do they call it coconut bacon why don't they just call it coconut shreds because it's smoky and salty it but is everything that's smoky automatically bacon? Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> there we go. I've changed my mind about everything. Argument settled. Yeah. I mean, I think when people use bacon, it generally means that there's some sort of smoky flavor and that's about it. I don't know. We're not going to. Andy, we are not staying on topic right now. <laughs> and much to Cat Fanatic 45's great dismay, <laughs> we are not staying on tra- topic. So I'm going to get back on topic. Second place I went to. Somehow I've not been to this place in my entire stay in Philadelphia so far, but Little Baby's Ice Cream. Have you ever been there, Andy? I never even heard of it. If there's two of them in Philadelphia, I think. I, I think there are some not in Philadelphia as well, but it's just an ice cream shop. It's not all vegan, but they have – when I went there yesterday, they had two uh, – they had four vegan options, I believe, and I and they weren't just – they weren't I know what you're all saying what you're all thinking right now. They have, you know, strawberry chocolate, strawberry chocolate swirl and like chocolate chip or something like that. But no, they didn't. They had the the two flavors that I got, I got one scoop of chocolate ginger, which had like actual little pieces of crystallized ginger in it, which was delicious. I love that. Nice. And then the other one, Andy, are you familiar with Irish potato candy? I have never heard of it. I had never heard of it either, and when I saw that Irish potato was a flavor, I said, "Like, what is this? Is this a joke?" And I said to myself, <laughs> "Maybe this is a fill." Because the person explained it to me is like, "Oh, you've never had Irish potato candy?" And I just kind of played it off. I was like, "Oh, yes, of course, I know what that means." I did not know what that <laughs> meant, but I looked it up, and and I was I was correct in my thinking that it is a it is a specific Philadelphia treat, much like Scrapple. It's a Philadelphia thing. And typically it's like this little, it's, it's kind of like made out of like s- some blend of coconut cream and, and there's like cream cheese in it and, and sugar and coconut and vanilla inside. And there was not cream cheese in this ice cream, but instead they literally just put 
little pieces of potato, potato chips, I mean, not potatoes, potato chips, which gave it like a nice little crunch. I feel like real Irish potato candy does not have potato chips in it, but they were like, this has the word potato in it, so we're going to throw it in there. But I loved it. I love these little crisp, like these little crispy little, little nuggets of joy that my, that I bit into as I, yes, as I bit into my ice cream, but (laughs) you monster, (laughs) but no, it was great. Both flavors blew me away. It's, I'm I've I've haven't had too much ice cream in the 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 recent past, but all the ice cream I have had has been just like you know the ones that you can buy at the supermarkets at this at this point. So it was nice to go to an ice cream shop, get it from a cone again, and and be really blown away by the flavors, and they they weren't just these basic flavors. So little baby's ice cream. I I know that those two flavors are not permanent flavors, but. It's cool that they had these these wacky flavors, and I hope that the next time I go, there's different wacky flavors. Personally, I'm just impressed that a little baby was able to open not one but two ice cream shops. <laughs> <laughs> At least two. Well, it's also funny because I got I got one regular scoop of the of the chocolate ginger and one little baby scoop of the Irish potato. <laughs> I mean, if if a little baby can open two ice cream shops, imagine what a large <laughs> baby can do. I just drank a, I drank some water before Andy said that, and I almost did a did a spit take, right all over the right all over the computer. <laughs> all right, enough with the food talk, Paul. It's time to move into a little bit of follow up. So last episode we talked about the protests going on at Antler Restaurant up in Toronto. Group of activists saw a sign, a chalkboard sign that said "Venison is the new kale." Got outraged, started organizing these protests. Stand out front. It gained some momentum. Ultimately, one of the co-owners, Michael Hunter, decided, I'm going to respond to this by taking a deer's leg and carving it up in full view of these protesters. And then I'm going to go back and cook this deer's leg up and then go back to the protest and eat said deer leg in front of these protesters. It gained national attention, tons of media. And we decided to talk about whether or not targeting specific individual businesses was a solid strategic choice. We recorded that, and we had some questions, and in the time between when we recorded that and when we released it, more information has come to light, so we want to do a little bit of follow-up on this. I think, Paul, one of our biggest concerns was, like, what is the ask? Like, we didn't rule out that there couldn't be any strategic value in targeting a specific business necessarily, but we were really wary of, what are you asking for? Because we had just heard they wanted to talk about veganism with the owner, and we they wanted them to add some vegan options to the menu was was sort of all that we were left with, and that's all we saw in in a myriad of articles that we looked at. So, uh, two pieces of of media that I came across: a blog called the Silicone Graybeard blog posted pictures of a before and after of the chalkboard that's out front of Antler, and. In the before section, it shows the the item being advertised as braised goose pot pie. And then the after section, it says vegan vegetable lumpia, which is essentially a spring roll type dish. And so according to this blog, after the protesters showed up, you know, first, second time, somewhere around there, he actually added vegan items to the menu. That's interesting. Even the protesters wouldn't think that getting this restaurant to turn completely vegan would be a realistic goal, especially that quickly. So I don't know. You would think that that would be like a good 
like a solid victory, getting this person to not only serve vegan options, but to have those advertised as like the front and center, the front and center thing that's on the chalkboard. Yeah. So according to this blog, the protesters felt emboldened by this and they decided to push for more. So, you know, I didn't find accounts of this from from anywhere else, but the the chalkboard does match the items that are currently found on their online menu. And I don't know, it's just kind of curious to me because I get why someone would go, oh, we got our thing and now we're going to push for more because look what we got. Like, how much further can we go? Yeah, I feel like you did a lot of like investigative research into this, Andy, and you're like cross-referencing pictures of chalkboards. Enhance, <laughs> enhance, enhance. <laughs> so much enhancing happening, Paul. <laughs> All right, so the, so the second little bit of media in regards to this discussion, it comes from uh, blog2.com, which is that big uh, Toronto-based blog news source, if you will. Vegan protesters still won't leave Antler Restaurant alone. And so essentially it's just sort of a, a recap of everything that we kind of talked about in the the episode. And of course, we'll put a link to any and all articles and videos that we talked about in our show notes over at thebeardvegans.com. What was interesting about this particular piece of media is that it included a link to a video. And apparently Michael Hunter, the, the guy that carved up the deer's leg, got interviewed on the Joe Rogan podcast because of this stunt that he pulled Hmm. and i'm not a regular listener of the joe rogan podcast but i've listened to a few whenever i've seen some interesting guests uh keegan and kip from cowspiracy and what the hell they were on there so you know i'll check it out just to see how that goes for them right joe rogan podcast the joe rogan experience is huge apparently According to one listing that I found from 2016, it was the number eight podcast in the country. Jeez. Right? And, and you know, we know the podcast listings are kind of <laughs> hard to come by. But if, all signs point to this being very popular. And there's a video of Joe Rogan at one point saying that he gets 30 million downloads a month. Woo. That was back in 2016. So so a little bit less than we do. So anyway, so this, this restaurant that was probably relatively obscure now because of this has gotten this national platform, uh, international platform, right? Mm -hmm. And you you can't, like, fault the protesters for that. You don't know how things are going to go. Like, I don't think anyone could have pictured that them protesting would result in this guy getting on Joe Rogan podcast to promote his his restaurant and bash veganism. But I I did watch the whole interview is an hour and 46 minutes long, but it's kind of broken up into little chunks on YouTube. And so I watched the clip that's linked in this article that specifically addresses the whole protest. It's about 10 minutes long if you want to watch it. And I thought it was kind of interesting because uh, Hunter, you know, says originally it started as a very peaceful thing and it was two or three people. And then eventually it was up to 15 people and they were sort of screaming murder at those that were entering and, uh, you know, this is his account. He might be dramatizing things a little bit, but I think it does run counter to what we were told the aims of the protest were, that they weren't there to shame anyone or hurt the business of the restaurant, that they just want to start a conversation about veganism. And, and so the thing that, that Joe Rogan points out in this, he says, well, why you? You're surrounded by restaurants. And I think that is the thing that everyone's kind of like, why did you pick on this one particular restaurant? Like, yes, they addressed why not McDonald's, why like a, a quote unquote humane meat restaurant. But 
uh, Hunter pointed out something interesting, which is that there's actually a butcher shop across the street from their restaurant that wasn't getting protested. Well, they were getting protested. Then I found an article from the National Post that said, because of these comments, the, the protesters started to also protest that butcher shop across the street to sort of be more ethically consistent. Yeah, was that like a reaction type thing? <laughs> I am led to believe that it was a reaction to that. Huh. Which is kind of, Paul, it makes me think about your scenario of the, the Monty Python everyone yeah. <laughs> like running from restaurant to restaurant and protesting. Yeah. yeah. But it kind of makes me think, like, like, where does it end? Where does it stop? At what point are they satisfied? Have they spent enough time at each restaurant? Again, it feels very aimless in how they've employed this whole thing. And again, we were kind of like, well, what exactly is their ask? Is it not realistic to say... You should just shut down. Like, I guess they could drive them out of business if they had, you know, bad enough tactics and kept the customers away. But obviously it backfired in that regard. So in the in the week that we recorded that and had that discussion, a few articles came out and it said that the protesters do have new demands. And they said they will leave this restaurant alone if they post a sign in their window, which reads, Animals' lives are their right. In their desire to live and capacity to suffer, a dog is a pig, is a chicken, is a boy, reject speciesism. And I'm pretty sure this is the exact same sign involved with the protests that were happening at that restaurant in the Bay Area, in Berkeley or Oakland, right? Yeah. Right? And Hunter, of course, is saying that he's refusing and that it's never going to happen. The protester said that they're going to project the, that slogan onto the building uh, then they changed their plan to projecting on a building nearby, and then the police stepped in and said, "No, nah, you're actually not going to do any <laughs> oh, of that." No. So none of that, none of that came to fruition. Paul, what do you think about this ask? I mean, maybe they are—they were inspired by that other, the the one that was in California, because I feel like if you had told me before the the butcher shop in California agreed to put that sign up if you had told me like hey these people are doing this because they want this sign up i would say there's literally no way that that butcher shop would ever agree to have that sign up but now they do apparently so i guess you know that 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 goes against what i would think happen would happen but it's like i have the same thought here it's like why would why would hunter put this sign up that would essentially discourage people from eating his food it, it like from like a business standpoint it doesn't really make any sense and it would only seem to hurt it like the only reason why i could think he would do it was he'd be like i'm tired of these people annoying me so sure i'll put this sign up which is basically what happened in california yeah and i'm sure that in california the owners were like no one's gonna pay attention to this sign anyway they're gonna shop here regardless so whatever if it'll get you to, to leave we'll do it and yeah and and also i feel like since Hunter has gotten, I I I imagine the majority of the the feedback he's getting, which is from non-vegans, is probably positive feedback for all his actions and all these things. Like I don't see why he would now give in to these demands. If anything, he's like, well, this is just stirring up more drama, which is bringing in more business for me. So cool, keep it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, it's it's clearly working really well, and I think. Maybe if if it wasn't such a national stage that this was being played out on, maybe he would just be like, oh, whatever, fine, put the sign up and leave." But I feel like with with all the scrutiny on him, it would 
it would make people think really poorly of him if he decided to cave after after doing such an audacious stunt as carving up a living being's you know leg in front of these protesters. Yeah, yeah. But it, it kind of makes me think like it's basically it's come to this point where it's essentially saying who is going to back down first, and I feel like no one's going to want to just leave and go at. Like, especially the protesters, I don't think they're going to want to leave. And You know what? This is just a waste of our time. We could be using this hour or whatever hour plus that it is that we're protesting every every weekend. We could be using our time in some better fashion because this is getting us nowhere. And what if we does put the sign up? We've wasted, you know, eight Saturdays of our lives protesting to get this little sign up that no one's going to pay attention to anyway. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't foresee Hunter backing down because... This again, like this is his business. He's not going to. He's not going to. I would be very surprised, especially given all of the, again, positive feedback and reactions he's gotten. I would be very surprised if if we get like vegan. We as vegans get any progress from from him. And I mean, it stinks because because it's like he gave us a little bit. He gave us like he gave us a couple dishes, and and I feel like that's a good start. And and I don't know, do you think we should have given like positive encouragement? Would would he have maybe changed then? Like would should we have just been like we as in the vegan movement, as in these protesters, should they or we have just been like, okay, we got this, we got this guy to add these menu items. Now let's go to a different restaurant and maybe we can get them to add a couple items to their menu and then now we can go from restaurant to restaurant but we're not asking we're not asking for this huge demand we're just asking like hey look this this restaurant down the street this really popular restaurant added these vegan options like you should consider doing that too because it it could be good for your business it would get more it could open up your business to to different types of clients yeah i think definitely the in my view in this particular instance the the positive way the positive encouragement is the way to go but i also don't think that the way to get someone to add vegan options on their menu generally speaking is to get a bunch of protesters out front of a restaurant i feel like that's not how you build a good relationship with someone that's not how you form trust it's certainly not how you get them to view veganism in a positive light and you know again paul we were talking about the episode like is it always necessary to to prize how is veganism portrayed by the public in every instance and, and yeah maybe that's not always the case but it feels like in in this type of activism it's important to be building bridges rather than sort of burning them and saying like okay well you gave us a few vegan options and now we're still going to protest until you do xyz yeah yeah and and i i guess i also worry that it might especially because this has become so big in the in the media or the meat yeah as as I think I will call it in this case, the media, you know, like meat media. I get it. I <laughs> but, like it. But because uh, I lost my train of thought because of that great pun. But because this has come, become so big, I feel like is it possible that other protesters, not even not the same group of people, other protesters or other vegans that are that are going to go to restaurants and be like, that are going to encourage them to include vegan options, are those restaurants going to be like, no, we're not going to give you vegan options because we know that once we give you vegan options, you're just <laughs> going to keep annoying. You're going to double down and keep bothering us. Like, hopefully, yeah. I hope that that is not a consequence from this. Yeah. Yeah. That is <laughs> certainly a possibility. 
And I don't know. I, I, I almost wonder if it would send a confusing message to have that sign up in the window because people might think that the restaurant endorses that sign and that the way they're running their restaurant is a way to to address the issue of speciesism is to have this humane meat and locally sourced meat and you know all of those things. I wonder if it's sort of a confusing message. I, yeah, I don't know if people would I don't know if people would make those sorts of connections, but I certainly do think there are some people that would be really confused and to be like, "Huh, this doesn't seem to fit with this." Okay, oh well, I'm going to go inside and now eat my deer leg. <laughs> yeah. All right, should we are we are we putting a little bow on this one, wrapping it up? You know, before we move on, Paul, something that I think that we neglected to include in that conversation what in terms of targeting specific individual businesses is is corporate campaigns and things like I've brought this up as an example in many episodes, but you know, the Shack campaign where they they weren't trying to directly shut down Huntington Life Sciences. They were going to people that had some small stake in that company. They were their insurance company or they're a small piece of their portfolio, whatever it is. And they go and annoy those people so much that they're like, it's not worth it. This is 0.5% of our business. And we would rather just give that up than deal with these annoying protesters all the time. Yeah. You know, I think in in those instances, we could see that it could be a, a tactic that's employed very effectively and successfully. You know, but again, if they just did that at Huntington Life Sciences, you know, or any business where you're essentially being like, we're trying to destroy you or get you to totally change your business model. That's not something that you can generally speaking, I think my assumption would be that's not something you could annoy a business owner into doing. Yeah, I agree. So, so again, I mean, I guess that just points to the fact that you were saying be strategic in what your ask is. Like, what are your demands? Is this something that a person would reasonably give up with enough prompting and pushing? So I, I just want to sort of say that because, I, again, I don't want to completely rule out these sort of strategic targeted campaigns. But I think that if you're going straight to the head source, it seems unlikely you're going to get what you want. And if all you want is a sign in the window, it, to me, it feels like not the best use of time. Now that was a nice little little bow on this on this topic. Little bow, Paul. You know what we got to do before we dive in this mailbag? What's that? We got to thank our brand new Patreon donor for this week. So thank you very much to Adelina B, who is our newest Patreon contributor. And if you want to get a shout out on the podcast, if you want to help keep us going, make this thing sustainable, you want access to bonus episodes, you want early access to episodes up to three days early sometimes, Paul, maybe we'll drop one four days early. Who Ooh. knows? You never know. Five? I don't know. I don't know what's going <laughs> that's on ridiculous. right now. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah, that's that's just crossing a line right there. If you want to, if you, but if you want to help contribute to the podcast, just go to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo, which is B-E-A-R-D-O. You'll have options. You can do a Patreon, a recurring donation. You can do a one-time PayPal donation. We super appreciate whatever anyone wants to do to help us keep this podcast going. And I thank you once again to Adelina B. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think we mentioned it last time, but the most recent bonus episode was a review of this film Empathy that we just watched. We watched it together. Ugh. I loved it. I'm glad I got to watch it with Andy in person. I loved making the episode. So I think that was a good episode. Yeah. And, you know, we actually got some really good feedback from that and people that were really appreciative of us doing that review because they would have never come across the film otherwise. I honestly don't even know how I came across it, even though it's (laughs) relatively new. 
So, so thank you to everyone giving us that feedback. I'm glad we could introduce people to this film that we both, you know, really enjoyed and had a lot of fun picking apart its problems. <laughs> All right, Andy, it's mailbag time. Because the mail never stops. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. There's never a let up. It's relentless. Every day it piles up more and more and more. And you got to get it up. And the more you get out, the more it keeps coming in. And then the barcode reader breaks. And it publishes clearing out. All right, all right, all right. When you control the mail, you control information. All right, Paul. So the first thing I want to say is we've been making an effort to respond to every email that we've been getting, for the most part, that warrants a response. And I've been I've been like archiving things and I've been making tabs for mailbag questions and future episodes and potential interviews and all that stuff. And I realized we were getting a lot of questions about bugs, like insects and worms. Bugs? <laughs> bugs to the point where I made a whole separate file, a whole separate tab just for those types of questions. So <laughs> We are not going to get to those questions in this episode, uh, and they they date back like at least a year and a half. Some of the older ones, but I think I think we need to do an insect related episode at some point in the future to really really hammer out the nuances of that particular aspect of, of vegan life. I I feel like that's been a topic similar to the bees topic, which we eventually did do a bees. Bee ep- bees. We eventually did do a bee episode, but like it's one of those things where it's like. Oh, yeah, we should do this. Oh, yeah, we should do this. And it just keeps kind of getting pushed back and more people keep asking about it. And then we eventually did the B episode. So, yeah, hopefully that that bug episode will come will come soon. Well, we have a we have a bug tab. We never had a B tab, Paul. So I feel (laughs) like this could happen sooner than later. With that being said, let's get into this mailbag. So the first the first question comes to us from Instagram from the vegan chicky who asked. If you could pick one vegan meal you have ever had that is your all-time fave, what would it be? Paul, this is an easy one for me. I think we may have answered this question at some point, but we are now getting to the point in our podcasting career where who knows? I don't know. <laughs> no one even knows, right? So my my easy answer is Homegrown Smoker, and it's there, which is a, uh, a vegan barbecue cart slash restaurant in Portland, Oregon. And it would be their tempeh ribs with a side of mac and cheese and their hush puppies, which they call shut the fuck up puppies. <laughs> it's one of my all-time favorite meals. It makes me sad that I haven't been to Portland in a number of years. I used to be there at least once a year for a while, but I would uh, that would be my, my final meal on this earth if I could have it my way. Nice, nice. What about you, Paul? My obvious answer was going to be Blackbird, but... I still love it. Since they changed the cheese, I have not been as big of a fan of the pizza. I still think they have my favorite cheesesteak and they have my favorite root beer barbecue ribs. Those are great. But then I was Paul, like, I don't want any of this wishy-washy stuff. I don't want you listing a bunch of restaurants. I want you to give me one specific meal. Okay. All right. Then it's going to be China Pan. It's going to be China Pan. Which is, which is, if you're not familiar, which it's not like a, on the vegan radar, I feel like, unless you live in Connecticut, but it's just this, it's not a vegan place. It serves meat, but they have an extensive vegan menu. If you're familiar with Maywa vegetarian meats, they have every single Maywa product that's ever existed. But my favorites are definitely the, the boneless barbecue ribs, the citrus vegan spare ribs, the general sow's chicken. I'll throw in an orange shrimp dish in there, and uh, that's probably all that I could eat. Maybe some mushu beef or something like that, but 
all of the I I love I love China Pan. I go there for my birthday every single year. Andy's never been able to make it, unfortunately. I try to send the gelatinous lobster in my place. <laughs> but yes, China Pan would be my my last meal. I think we'll just leave gelatinous lobster hanging in the air for people to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got an email from Arshley B who emails in what would happen to the podcast, the logo, the name, etc. if one of you decided to part with his beard. I feel like now, especially due to the podcast popularity, you kind of have a lifelong commitment to your beards. Is that a pressure you feel as well? I don't think I really feel pressure to do that. I think if I really wanted to, I would probably shave my beard and although if people ever met me in person, then I'm sure that that would be the first thing that people would, would ask, like, oh, why is this your name if you don't have a beard? And they would think they would be so clever, but little do they know that would be the first question that everyone asked. But <laughs> although, that, although that scenario has played in my head many times, I don't feel like I'm super pressured to not have a beard. That being said, I have had a beard for probably almost – I guess approaching a decade maybe. And I don't really have any plans to not have a beard. So I think it's going to stay for a little bit. I think my face looks silly without a beard. Paul, I think you are such a handsome man and have such a handsome beard. Thank you. (laughs) Same goes to you, Andy. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. Yeah. The last time I had a clean shaven face was, I want to say like almost, yeah, probably close to 10 years ago, if not longer. And the only reason why it was shaved clean was because I was a part of a year beard challenge and everyone had to, those participating had to shave their face clean on New Year's Day and then grow it out for a full year. Mm. So, and I had already had like three months of uh, growth without trimming up until that point, And I was actually pretty bummed to lose out on that progress. Also shaving your beard in the dead of winter, not great, <laughs> but it did feel weird to air out my chin. It was like a new <laughs> sensation. Like I was like, how, how warm could a beard actually keep your face? Turns out very warm. Young Andy also used to rock the mutton chops too. <laughs> I have some really great driver's license pictures where I specifically had really wacky facial hair. It's no Patrick Babaumian, but well, <laughs> what what is? <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I feel no pressure to keep my beard, but I also just really like the beard, and it's a part of who I am as a person. And no one wants to see what's going on under this anyway. Oh, so. oh sh- stop that, Andy. So this next one's coming to us via our email, thebeardvegans at gmail dot com. From Dean P. I think this one is specifically uh, toward, targeted towards you, Andy. When you came up with the plan or epiphany to live out of your van, did this idea come about in the interest of minimalism or simply because a more nomadic lifestyle was appealing? Well, I don't know how much people want to hear me blather on about my van life, but maybe that'd be like a bonus episode at some point. Yeah. You, you can do a bonus episode about vans. I'll do a bonus episode about math. It'll be great. Perfect. Perfect. Everything We got everything everyone could possibly need in their lives. <laughs> uh, for anyone that's unaware, I live in my van. I've been fully nomadic since July of 2015. So, wow, coming up on three years in the van. And the, the plan to do so was ultimately born out of necessity because I have my clothing line, Compassion Company. I travel around to VegFest nationwide. I'm doing one most weekends of the year. I do between 30, 35 or so a year, at least last time I counted. 
and you know not all of them are close to the northeast where i used to officially reside and actually have an address and i found myself just sort of being on the road like eight months out of the year it didn't make sense for me to pay for an apartment when i was doing that uh, i had already gotten rid of most of my possessions when i started touring uh, doing the 10 million lives tour because i'd be touring for six months then i'd be off for six months and when i when i first started doing that i gave i had a huge record collection dvd collection book collection i gave away all those collections to different friends that i think would would enjoy them the most kind of on permanent loan i was like hey maybe i'll want these back someday but probably not so here enjoy them and from there i just sort of started getting rid of things so definitely the minimalism appealed to me but it wasn't the main reason for it that being said, the van that I have is a Transit Connect, which is basically the size of a minivan, and it is the most hyper-minimalist situation possible because the majority of the space is taken up by my inventory, like all the shirts and display stuff that I have. I have like four tables in there and a tent and all this stuff, so it's really forced me... All of my clothes, for the most part, fit in one medium-sized duffel bag, and I love that you know, if I bring something new into the van, that means I have to reassess everything in there and maybe I have to get rid of something else. So it really makes me evaluate whether something is important in my life or not. So, so I do love that side effect of living in the van. It is something that I really like, but generally speaking, it's just a life that I really love. I love traveling. I love having something like a new location every week or every day or whatever it might be. Um, I also enjoyed I enjoy the duality by Slipknot Paul because I also really like when I just get to chill with my family or my partner for for a couple of weeks or a month or something like that as well. So I have a nice balance in my life. Nice, well put, Andy. Thanks, Paul. All right, interesting question here from Kerbin two one one two on Instagram. Do you guys still have cravings for animal products? If so, how do you tackle them? So I feel like in general. My answer is no. I don't have cravings. I will, of of course, like I'll be watching, if if I'm watching something like a cooking show or something like that, I will say that looks that looks like it would taste good. But I feel like craving implies something a little bit more than just like that would probably be acceptable to my to my tongue <laughs> if I put that in my mouth. This is how Paul thinks about food. <laughs> that would be acceptable to my tongue. <laughs> this has an acceptable number of grams of protein. The other day, the other day I found I think it's veganproteins.com, they sell a 50-pound bag of vital wheat gluten that has 20,000 grams of protein. <laughs> so it's like a day serving for you? But yeah, yeah, basically, basically. But I and and I feel like this answer that I'm giving does a disservice to 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 newer vegans, because when I was a newer vegan, and, and I want to say even the first couple years probably, I totally had cravings, and it was totally much more difficult for me to be like, oh man, that tastes so good, and I really want that, and, and all my friends are eating that right now, and I really do want that. But over time, and I know this is something that Andy has said a bunch, and, and I, it totally resonates with me too, over time, you just stop seeing these things as food. You stop seeing animal flesh as food. You stop seeing cows cow's milk as as something that you should that that is acceptable to eat or drink in the same way that I wouldn't pick up a, a rock from the ground and be like, huh, like should I eat this? I could eat I could try <laughs> to eat it if I wanted to, but this is not food, so I'm not going to eat it. So I feel like that's kind of what happened to me over time. 
So I don't really get those cravings anymore, which is of course not to say that I don't like I'm, I will, I will also differentiate myself from what some of my friends say, which is, and, and like my dad who hasn't eaten meat in, in decades either, he like, he does not like things that taste like meat. And I have a lot of friends that are grossed out by things that taste like meat. Like, like for instance, the Beyond Burger, the Impossible Burger. I'm totally not one of those. I, I don't fall in that category. I'm not throwing in, throwing any shade at those at at those folks. But for me, it's just like I don't. I, I will eat these things that are imitating animal products, but I don't have cravings specifically for animal products. Yeah, I mean, honestly, again, you know, I'm over ten years deep in it, so I think that. I've never had like a craving, like what you, how you sort of qualified a craving, Paul, like this, this like deep primal need for something in my life. I haven't felt that in terms of like an animal product in, in a very, very long time. But I think that my advice for someone that's in that situation would be to one, if possible, seek out the vegan alternative for those things. And also, I think it's important, especially early on, to to sort of remind ourselves of of why we're doing this. Um, I don't think that that necessarily means you have to go watch graphic animal, you know, slaughter footage or something like that. But things like that can help, and and things like watching documentaries about being vegan and, and why you should be vegan. I think those things help us to really sort of recommit ourselves to this whole thing until we get to that point where it just is how you are. It's just like breathing. It's just like you know, taking a breath in and out, you don't think about it. And so, so I think it's, it's, you know, you achieve that level at some point. I mean, maybe, I don't know, I can't even speak for everyone. Maybe some people don't, maybe some people do fight those cravings, but I think it's important to learn like, what is it that you're actually craving? Are you actually craving cow's flesh or are you craving the experience of going to a fast food place and getting some fries and putting a bunch of ketchup on something? And like, what is it that you really want out of this particular craving? And then finding ways to to satisfy those needs via plant based alternatives. Yeah, and and like on a on a similar note, I remember I remember first going vegan and. I remember finding it difficult to to read labels and, and, and those sorts of things to figure out if things were vegan. And now it's like I could read a label with a hundred ingredients and find the the milk product like like nobody's business. Milk. So, milk. And and what you were saying though, Andy, about like is it the the actual product or is it the experience? I've never thought about that before, but that makes me even happier when I see, I know one of the, one big thing I've seen a few of my friends post about is going to all these new baseball stadiums that have like the vegan hot dogs and being like, I'm going to eat so many hot dogs at this, at this event because, (laughs) because it is, it's like, that's, it's, we could go out and get a tofu pup, which I love at like any day of the week at stop and shop or something like that. But it's the experience of having it while you're doing this this other activity that that it's like oh man i'm i miss doing that and and so that's why it's nice to have these sorts of things now yeah definitely i think that that's something that is maybe missing from the conversation that's not even just the the taste of something but going out like i mean i'm thinking even specifically about the white castle you know with the impossible burger right now and seeing a lot of people saying 
oh, this brings me back and it's so nostalgic. And yeah, maybe for like the longtime vegan, it's a nostalgic thing. But maybe for someone that's just transitioning and White Castle is their favorite place to go to eat. and They want to eat a, a crave case of hamburgers, you know, they, <laughs> like, you know, you can get those experiences now. Again, not accessible to everyone, of course. But but I think that that is a that's an important reason to to be glad that some of these things are coming to the market. God, still got to try that. Maybe on my drive home tomorrow to Connecticut, I'll stop in New Jersey. Bring a briefcase, Paul. <laughs> All right. So next question also from Instagram comes to us from Maddie Ruthless, who asks, what kind of suggestions do you guys have for vegans or vegetarians that suffer from allergies to soy? This is a good question, Paul. I don't think either of us have any severe food allergies, right? You are correct. So I think I'll just keep my response brief in this case because this is not something that we personally deal with but i have a few friends that are soy free including one who started soyfreevegan.com which i know wasn't really super active for a while and i just went there in preparation for this episode and soyfreevegan.com now just directs you straight to a soy free vegan instagram account i'm assuming run by the same person and I was just scrolling through these photos and I was like, oh, I didn't, I, you know, it's again, the soy allergy is not something that's on my radar. And I, it was like, oh, the new Beyond Sausage is soy free and the day of mac and cheese is soy free. And not just these prepackaged products, but it was showing lots of recipes and, and, and all of these things. And I think that my answer, my response would be to seek out media that is catered to your specific allergies. Because I think that you'll get so many ideas, you'll get support, you won't feel so alone, you won't feel like it's the hardest thing ever because other people are are going through this with you. And I think having your support network is really important. And I think that goes for all aspects of veganism, not just these dietary components. But again, it's important to not feel alone in the world. And so even on Facebook, I just typed in Soy Free Vegan. I found a Facebook group that had 7,000 members. There's a couple others with less and there's ones for soy-free and gluten-free vegans. And, and you're like, you know, whatever it is, you can sort of find your group of people on there. And, you know, even if you don't get along with everyone in there, it could be a good resource for recipes or navigating life and how to deal with, you know, restaurants and, and menus and all of these things from people that are already – that have already navigated these things before. So it will be less of a learning curve for you. So that would be my suggestion to Maddie, who's actually a great reggae artist. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I like, like Andy said, this is not something that's really ever been on my radar. So it's like, I don't have much personal experience with this, but I feel like, and, and uh, this could be because I've lived in places that have a lot of vegan options anyways, but I feel like in, in recent years, I've seen more places pop up that are offering these in addition to being vegan options. They're also like allergen free options. So maybe also just like putting putting a little bit of pressure on some of the vegan places to also offer those options might not be a bad thing too. All right. Well, there you go, Maddie. Uh, if there are any soy free vegans out there, write us in. Let us let us know if you're a vegan that's navigating any specific food allergy. Let us know what your tips and tricks are and how you navigate that, and we can bring them up on air to to help out other people that might be feeling a little bit lost in that regard. All right, we got a question from Wilhelm B. who asked us via our Patreon page. Because, yes, we are posting there regularly. We post the episodes that go up and, of course, the bonus episodes. But we also just post questions about mailbag and other little little bearded vegans updates. So Wilhelm B. took advantage of that and said, Hey, folks, I know Paul is geek culture inclined. 
Not sure if Andy is, though. And I'm curious how Paul feels about the games, video or tabletop, that involve animals. For instance, harvesting furs, eating animals, etc. So, Paul, Mr. Geek Culture Inclined, <laughs> how do you feel about this? I, You know, I know we talked about that PETA story, right, where they were trying to get Warhammer 40,000 to remove the plastic fur off the little figurines. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, but like, how do you how do you feel in general? Do you feel conflicted if you're you're playing some sort of game and, and animal exploitation is a central or even side component to it? That I, I this may be an unpopular opinion, but that's not something that's ever really bothered me. In in and and I will say because I don't want to give a blanket statement like, oh, it's a video game and and it's not real, so nothing it, it does it doesn't affect people at all because I do think that. Video games can shape people's perceptions about things. So there are video games that I that I don't play, and this is not specifically for vegan reasons, but for like for other reasons. Nerd reasons. Nerd re- no, no, no. Just like like I can think of one video game that was it was realistically violent in a way that even video games that are very violent they're usually not super realistic and i was like this makes me uncomfortable so i'm just not going to play this game but for games where i'm like you know skyrim for instance it's like i'm i'm killing orcs and goblins left and right and there's also usually in in any sort of of these fantasy type games there's some like oh i need to harvest these pelts so that i could i could sell them and get blah 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 and that kind of stuff has never has never bothered me. I will say whenever I'm playing it and like my brother or someone is watching me around, I'll just like be playing it and under my breath I'll just be like, not vegan. But <laughs> just so it's on his radar as well. But um yeah, I don't know. That's some that, that's never really bothered me just because I mean, this is something this this is a world where I'm also killing all of these other innocent or maybe not innocent, but maybe evil, I don't know, creatures or of other races and stuff like that, like elves and goblins and orcs and things. So I don't know if, uh, if especially if it's not one of the main components of the game. I think a long time ago we talked about those like big game hunter games that are in arcades yeah. sometimes. And even those, it's like that's never really bothered me that much because I, I, I don't, in my opinion, like – the hunting industry is not going to stick around or die because of these these video those big game hunter video games and if anything maybe it allows people that do want to do that kind of stuff but are like oh, I probably shouldn't do this because it it's shitty and sucks and you shouldn't do it it allows them to still partake in that thing that they enjoy doing for one reason or another so hmm. Yeah, I feel conflicted about that because maybe it's an outlet for someone that, yeah, like you said, wants to kill deers for fun or whatever. But maybe it's maybe it reinforces the idea that it's okay to kill deer for fun. And this is like I kill deer in the daytime, then I go to the bar at night and I get to shoot deer again in the safety of this bar. And I don't know. Honestly, I feel like it could go either way. And me personally i feel like games like that like the the big game hunter and the the fishing games and things like that i think when when the animal exploitation is a central component i feel like those i this is i have no scientific research to back this up whatsoever 
my intuition would be that they reinforce the norms that animals are here for us to use. And I think that if it's just like Oregon Trail or something, I don't know. I, I guess hunting is kind of a big part of that one as well. But, <laughs> you know, it's not like the, the title of Oregon Trail isn't like kill a bunch of buffalo, you know. I, I, for, in my mind, I see a difference that's maybe a hard line to, to discern and to draw in the sand. But but personally, I feel like, I don't know, It's kind of those games kind of weird me out. But I guess someone else could be like, yeah, it's weird that you want to play... Not that I play this game because I can't play anything past N64, but like it's weird <laughs> that you want to play Grand Theft Auto and go around and doing all these horrible things to other people. Yeah. So like, I, so I get that. And then, and, and I feel like it's it's hard to draw a line because you it, like where's where would be the hard line where you're like, oh, this is this is where the violence is both like realistic and prevalent enough that now this is an issue versus like oh mario kart i'm throwing turtle shells and and knocking these people off of bridges and stuff like that like it's still a form of aggression and violence yeah yeah i mean i guess i feel like i don't know i feel like there's probably been all sorts of debates about this somewhere in the world right but i feel like there's sort of a difference between the cartoony violence of mario kart and the very realistic violence of a Grand Theft Auto. I, I do agree. And, and also, I've even though I am of the opinion that I stated before where it's like I don't necessarily think that these things are are have like direct correlation with the promotion of people to continue exploiting animals in real life or violence. But I will say I did read or I saw this video uh, a few months ago that was that was kind of tackling the issue that all of the, the all popular video games now or like 95% of popular video games now all have some component of violence in them and that probably is a reflection of our society and it's like the fact that the only video games that get really popular are the games that have some element of violence to them and there are all these other amazing video games especially like indie ones out there where violence isn't isn't a component to them, but they don't really get the exposure because they don't they, they know people know that they're not going to sell as well. So there is something to be said about how video games might be a reflection of some of our societal norms, but I'm not qualified to delve into that. Yeah, and I, I'm sure there are some people that would make the jump to say because of these violent video games, we have a more violent society. And and it's like a cycle that feeds off of off of itself. But I don't know if that's like you said. Is it a reflection of our society, or does it influence our society? And maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that leads nicely into our next question, though. Yeah. So Liz C emailed in. Is there any vegan perspective on sports? Like, is being a sports fan vegan since a number of sports use animal products in the equipment? Well, that's a good question. So I think before I even attempt to answer this question, I want to say, you know, Paul and I, we field these questions because I think it's fun to sort of tease out the nuances of these things. But we're not authorities on what is and isn't vegan. And, you know, a lot of these things people need to decide for themselves. And I don't want people to ever think that we're like, we are the authority on this and it's ironclad and stamped and carved into stone or whatever it is because we have deemed something vegan or not vegan. I think it's important to... You know, reflect on what your values are and and ask yourself, you know, what meaningful actions can you take in your daily life? 
So with that said, with that little caveat said there, I do think this is an interesting question because my my initial inclination, Paul, was to say no. There is no vegan position on sports. It's kind of a vague category. And then, it, I mean, it had me thinking, you know, like, okay, if if the ball in whatever game is made out of leather, are we endorsing animal exploitation by paying a ticket to go see whatever the game is, or even the ad revenue that's coming into a station because you're watching a particular game. And I I think that if you look at it from that perspective, it's almost this exercise in futility because I feel like there's almost no form of entertainment that you could partake in that didn't have some aspect of, of like that within it. You know, like I love to go see the movies, but I would never be able to in a million years find a film that's all vegan. I don't think aside from maybe a few documentaries. Right. Yeah. And even then, it's like, okay, well, is the person that sold them the film not vegan? And are they wearing leather shoes? And, you know, you're sort of like, how many steps away removed do you need to be before you feel comfortable with it? Mm -hmm. So I think initially I say, no, there is no official vegan position on sports. But it did have me wondering, Paul. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would consider, like, rodeo a sport. And obviously at the rodeo, at least one animal is going to die or be exploited a lot of the time. And is that meaningfully different from going to see a sport where all of the athletes are using uh, a ball that's made out of leather? Maybe their shoes are are suede. And is there any meaningful difference between those two things? Is this like a weird line that we've drawn for ourselves? I think that there is a meaningful difference because, because at the rodeo, the animal exploitation is the, the the central component of the sport itself like the animal exploitation is the sport versus in something like basketball or soccer or football there are there's equipment that is using animal products but that's more to me that seems more it's like this is the byproduct of a non-vegan world versus a rodeo or like bullfighting where it's like this, the animal exploitation, that this is the thing. And, and I, I feel like, you know, once we get more people to become vegan, once we kind of tip the tide of things, I, I think that we'll see a lot of, a lot of, of these byproducts like shoes, like sports equipment, like the leather that's in cars and these sorts of things, things that are the byproduct of a non-vegan world, we'll see those things start to change. But I don't think we will see bullfighting or a rodeo change. I think people will realize, man, this is messed up and they'll just get, they'll be eliminated completely. So it's like, I think there is a meaningful difference because there are these things that can be done in a vegan way versus there are these other sports, which cannot be done in a vegan way because they are just so not vegan. Great answer, Paul. Thank you, Andy. All right. Our next question is coming to us from For Love of All Animals Toronto, who asked on Instagram, Since going vegan a year ago, I have noticed a profound positive change to my health, my energy level, my appearance, and most importantly, my soul. However, in the same time, I have felt increasingly isolated from my family, my friends, and my community. It is as if my metamorphosis has left everyone and everything I knew before behind. My question is, how does the vegan reconcile the extreme passion for doing the right thing with the isolation from friends, family, and society as a whole? This is 
A heavy question. This is a very heavy question. I think like what I would say initially is, you know, seek out the vegan community, whether that's in person or online or through the, the media that you choose to listen to. Seek out those people who have these similar experiences to you or who have had similar experiences to you or are living through this similar experience so that you can kind of feel connected to. I feel like that's the easy answer, but that kind of also dismisses how hard it is to, as you say, to like leave behind all these other people. And I think what I would say is you don't necessarily need to leave all these other people behind just because you have this one very important piece there's one very important thing that that maybe like this is now a part of your identity that is, you know, it goes against some of what other people do. I don't think that necessarily means you need to cut ties with people altogether. And, it, you know, this might be happening naturally where you're, you grow apart from people because of these differences. But I, I think I would say, you know, try to maintain these relationships if they're able to be healthy obviously you, you don't want to force something that's detrimental to, to your health or their health but you know you, you don't need to there are gonna i'm sure that before you and i'm gonna say you but i just mean anybody that's going through this situation in general i'm sure that before you were vegan you like you connected with these people on on things that were not just necessarily related to food maybe for some people it was like you went to the steakhouse every weekend and that was your thing. But for a lot of people, I'm sure you were connecting on other levels. And just because you're vegan now, a lot of those other things haven't necessarily changed. Maybe you, maybe you like to play mini golf a lot. Maybe you like to go to the movies a lot. Maybe you like to play board <laughs> games a lot. I'm describing Andy. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was say, sign me up. <laughs> but like those things are not necessarily going to be changed once you go vegan. So I think there are still a lot of ways that you could probably connect with these people from your pre-vegan days. And, and if this is something that's important to you to maintain these relationships, you know, just still do those things with, with those people. I think that's what I would say. Yeah. I think this is a pain that most vegans go through, especially if you are someone that is the only vegan, you know, or the only vegan in your family, that you sort of feel like you've woken up from the matrix and you've, you've realized the truth about what's going on around you and nobody else is willing to accept it. And, and, and everyone's just sort of making fun of you or you're giving you a hard time or asking these really weird questions, or maybe they're not inviting you to, to go out to eat with them anymore. Cause they don't want to deal with choosing a place with vegan options or something. And I guess I just, I just want to sort of, double down on what Paul said and back that up that it's, it can be really hard. I think that anyone that tells you going vegan is easy in many regards, it can be, but I think that it's, it's really important for us to acknowledge the fact that it can be a very lonely, it can be a very isolating experience to go vegan, especially, especially early on, which is often when I think a lot of us tend to be very vocal about it. Cause we feel like we've learned this truth and we change because of it. And if we tell other people the truth, they're going to change because of it, but then they don't. And it can be a really demoralizing experience. It can be a really disappointing and deflating experience. So we, we've been there, you know, we hear you and it, it definitely sucks. And, and, you know, like Paul said, I encourage you to, 
to find some people to relate to. I know that's easier said than done. I know our standard answer is go find a Facebook group that resonates with you. There's a million different versions of that, but you know, it's sort of finding your, your community, wherever it might be, I think is an incredibly important thing for, for all of us to do for navigating through life. And if, if your name implies that you live in Toronto, we've been, we've been to Toronto. It seems to have a pretty good vegan scene going on. So connect with some of those cool Toronto people. Yeah. If, actually, if you go down to Antler every Saturday, you can find <laughs> 15 to 20 vegans. Dang. Oh, boy. All right. We've, we met some really cool beardos in Toronto when we were up there doing that live podcast, some oh, yeah. of whom continue to write in pretty regularly. Yeah. So they're out there. They're out there. So this next one coming to us internationally from Shunni A, who emailed in from Israel. On an advice podcast I listened to, a listener wrote in and asked about secular alternatives to saying grace before a meal. One of the hosts said that in his household, they talk about things they're grateful for before eating and also say thanks to the people who work to provide their food and the animals who gave their lives for it. What do you think of this practice of thanking the animals one eats? Do you think it raises awareness of the fact that animals were killed who didn't want to be killed, or does it create the illusion that the animals gave their lives voluntarily and is meant to cleanse the conscience of those eating them? Do you think that acknowledging the animals is worth something, or is it hypocritical? Maybe both? Andy, what do you think? I th- I'm going to be really dismissive and say I think it's a meaningless token gesture, and I don't think it means anything for the animals that are about to be consumed. I agree. I, I think... I think I agree with Shonni when they say like it's it's acting as though the animal voluntarily gave their life. It's like, oh, thank you so much to this animal. Like I appreciate you so much for doing this for me. When it's like the animal didn't do this thing for you. You took this from the animal. So I, I, I do think, like Andy was kind of pointing out, I do think that it's 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 – probably negative in the in the sense that it reinforces the idea that this is something that's okay and and it's it's okay as long as we're we appreciate it whereas like appreciating it doesn't really have anything to do with the fact that we're still taking this life that's not ours to take yeah and i see this sentiment when i'm doing outreach with people and they say well as long as we give thanks for the animal and it 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 feels like a thing that we do to make ourselves feel better that all of a sudden it's okay that we've we've committed you know a pretty atrocious thing you know taking an animal's life purely for our palate pleasure in many instances so yeah i i i i do think i do think that the the very great part about this is instead of saying you know grace saying what you're what you're grateful for what you're thankful for i think that that is a great practice i think it's important to to practice you know what we're what we're thankful for, some daily affirmations, you know, what do you appreciate in your life? I think those things can be really good. I think that that's a better way to show your, your appreciation and your, and your gratefulness for, for the meal that you have just had. But I think that convincing yourself that's okay to, to kill this animal simply because you're saying thanks or that you're appreciative is, is obscuring what's actually going on. Yeah. I think if you made the analogy, like, Oh, I, I, I went over to Andy's van and I stole something out of his van. But after I stole it, I said under my breath, thank you, Andy. I appreciate this. That doesn't make it an okay thing to do. I'm so grateful for this Soylent bottle that you've given me. (laughs) 
All right. So this next question comes to us on our Facebook from Joanne M. Who asked? <laughs> What's that? What? You're so surprised, Paul. Well, I don't know. All these different medias, Patreon, email, Instagram, Facebook. I love it. Joanne M. asks, how should direct action everywhere groups in locations other than San Francisco respond to the recent allegations? All right. I think we need to give some context for this question, Paul. So Direct Action Area, or DXC, an activist group that's central to the Bay Area, San Francisco, Berkeley area, uh, we've talked about them extensively on the show before, Paul, and I'm sure I can, I can hear the emails coming in already <laughs> as we start <laughs> to talk about this. Uh, you know, we've talked about their tactics, but we've also talked about their, their history. There's a lengthy history of allegations against them in terms of harboring abusers and accusations of racism and, and uh, you know, lots of not good things. And, you know, we try to acknowledge that when we do talk about them. I know that it, you know, kind of gets swept under the rug a lot of times. But recently, and, you know, Paul, actually, we I think our discussion about this specific aspect of DXE dates back to the episode that we did about the Liberation Pledge so many moons ago. Hmm. You know, we sort of said, because essentially what the Liberation Pledge was, was this this pledge that you take where you say, I will not sit at a table where animals are being consumed. And our concern was that that serves to separate people from their friends and family that are not vegan. And that that was something that like cults do because they try and separate, separate people out from the, from their support groups. And at the time I said, you know, I, I don't think they're actually a cult. I think it's a little hyperbolic, but I am worried about this aspect of it. Well, the recent allegations that Joanne is referring to is a blog from from friend of the show, Carol Adams, who wrote uh, a blog said, why I am boycotting events if DXE is also an invited speaker. And, you know, any anyone from DXE could be a speaker. There's a, a core group as well as a bunch of cell groups that are sort of all over the world at this point. And uh, Carol is not the first person to speak out on this specific aspect uh, that she details in her blog, and that is that she believes that they are a cult. She sort of outlines – she doesn't even really talk about the, the abuse allegations, but she mostly outlines questions that current DXC members can ask themselves and say, am I in a situation where I'm potentially in a cult? And, yeah, like I said, Carol's not the first person to write a blog like this. Uh, Woke Vigana wrote a blog uh, not not super long ago, that was called 10 Signs, Your Animal Rights Group is Actually a Cult. And we're getting, you know, there's accounts from people that were in DXC and came out, and they sort of back this up. I, you know, I, I, this is coming from, like, comments uh, of where these things have been posted on Facebook. People saying, you know, as someone who used to be part of DXC, I can back up these accounts. I, I think this is an accurate assessment. And also something that... Carol Adams mentions in her blog is a, a document that was going around called Steps to Healing Our Community. And this is something that was written by several key members of, of DXC, as well as a lot of organizers from around uh, the world, essentially trying to address the issues within DXC. And even in the document, they straight up say that they don't believe DXC is a safe place for women. Uh, this document was never really meant to to get out. Of course, it did. And it was essentially uh, they were trying to fix DXE, and they were trying to get rid of some of the, the key leadership from DXE, and they believed that certain key leaders were 
integral to the oppressive structure of DXE, essentially. So that is the, the context. And so Joanne here is asking, how should DXE groups respond to this? Uh, how, how should they how should they deal with this? Because, you know, there are all these issues with their central group, the, the sort of the key group, the steering committee. And then there's these people that are operating almost independently from them that share that name and share the tactics. But they're not necessarily maybe getting their marching orders. They're not involved with all these allegations. And, and they're like, well, you shouldn't paint DXC in this horrible light. You know, all of us in this horrible light. So this is my response. I think that it that DXC groups should disassociate themselves with the name and go do their own thing under their own group. This is something that Carol gets in her at in her blog, but essentially it's saying you don't need this moniker to do what you want to do. Now, Paul and I are not huge fans of a lot of those tactics, but you can do the tactics that they engage in and not be a part of DXC. I think that if people like truly and meaningfully want to address these issues. They need to hold their leaders accountable. And I think that that means rejecting them, getting rid of them probably, but also just rejecting the name. You don't need that name. Uh, You know, DXC is not the first group to do these things. You can do these things on your own. And that is my opinion on how all these groups other than in San Francisco should respond to these allegations because, there's a mountain of them, and I think it would be foolish to to brush them under the rug. Yeah, and actually, I may have mentioned this in an episode a couple weeks ago, but there's a, a group in Philadelphia that that's exactly what they did. I think about a year ago, they were DXE, and then they said, like, well, I don't agree with all these things that DXE are doing. So they, they changed their name, and now they're a, a different and separate group. You know, it's like... I, I don't agree with a hundred percent of all the types of activism that they're doing, but I one I definitely commend them with separating themselves from that because it's like I, I do think it's in some regards it's easier said than done. Like y- you, especially if you were big into that and you're big into that community, it, it could be hard to separate yourself from that community. It's like in some ways you're isolating yourself from this one specific subsect of a vegan community that you maybe were very, very passionate about for, for many years. So it's like, I do give them credit for, for doing that. So it's possible to be done. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the people that are exiting that group is, is pretty immense and there are support groups for people that do want to leave. And, and I think people should seek those out. I think that, you know, the, the accounts that we're hearing from people coming out are certainly not anything that I would wish anyone to go through. So, yeah, I think that's a great example, Paul, of, of like Liberation Philadelphia. Like, go do your own thing. Denounce your leaders. You know, a- again, like Paul mentioned, we don't agree with all those tactics. I think that, that a lot of the sort of examples that they're based upon are flawed. I think the conclusions that their leadership makes on why certain tactics will work is deeply flawed. But I think that at the very least, if people truly believe in these tactics and, and what they're doing – that they should separate themselves out from this group because I think that it's just a ship that's going down at this point. I also think in my mind, at least you, you may disagree, Andy, but I feel like I kind of, sometimes I separate like, Oh, I have a difference in opinions about vegan tactics with this person versus like, I think what this person doing, what this person is doing is oppressive. Like, I feel like that's on another level. And I feel like a lot of DX, the lot, some of the DXC stuff falls into that other level, and like that's where it gets like 
Like, no, this isn't just like I'm disagreeing with with your tactics. We have a disagreement in opinions about this. It's like this stuff is damaging. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's sort of twofold. There's the allegations, of course, which are damaging to the activists, uh, which is ultimately damaging to the animals, of course, if we're driving activists away. And then there's the the tactics which we feel are damaging to promoting veganism. Yeah. With that said, Paul, we got two emails left. You, and... you sure we don't have three ending? Three three <laughs> mailbags left? <laughs> we probably have three. I'm pretty sure actually we have two emails and one physical letter. <laughs> So uh, these these last two emails are addressing Veganuary, and we had our whole episode about that. We did some follow-up on it, and we asked people to to email in their experiences. You know, did it work for you? Did it not work for you? We got two really interesting emails that are two very different sides of the coin. So I thought it would be, be good to read them. The second one is is very long, but... We will make our way through it because I think there's a lot of good points and, and things that we should talk about to, to wrap up this, this mailbag episode. So I'm just going to read quickly this first one, who is from Claire B. I'm assuming the B stands for bear. This must be Claire Bear, right? <laughs> I know that's not actually the case. Who emails in from London. I did Veganuary in the UK two years ago and was vegetarian and have stayed vegan along with my husband who joined me but did not sign up. The daily emails you get from Veganuary cover all types of things. And for context, you know, we, we were like, oh, we wonder what the emails they're sending to people are. And because uh, we did not receive those just from looking at their website. Uh, the daily emails you get from Veganuary cover all types of things from animal ethics, health info, environment, and recipes slash tips. It's quite ethics heavy, making it hard to see it as a 30-day challenge. The most useful thing they have is an official Facebook group, which I think was UK-based, and this was very helpful slash supportive and is always there, never closes. I did Veganuary as my friends did it and encouraged me, who also stayed vegan four years now. Last year, I had another friend do it who also stayed vegan and three other friends who did it this year who have so far stayed vegan. They intend to. You know, obviously, it's pretty early in the year at this point. I have not known anyone to do it and not stick to it. I asked them why, and they all said because of the animal cruelty it makes you aware of. I think Veganuary is a wonderful thing, as it can suck people in, as it is only 30 days, but if you read what they send, it would be hard to go back. Interesting. That's hopeful. Definitely, Paul. And actually, you know, we said maybe we'll do Veganuary next year and see what the emails are. But you can sign up at any old time of the year, Paul. Ooh. And you know what I did before we started this recording? Did you sign up? I signed us up. Yay! So first name, The Bearded, last name, Vegans. <laughs> and so we're going to start getting these emails, and we're going to see how we feel about the, the messaging that they're sending out there. But I'm, I'm curious to check it out. I was wondering what that email was. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, so, so the one thing that I'm actually curious about, maybe we'll reach out to Veganuary to to learn about this. When you sign up for it, you choose what your current diet is: omnivore, pescatarian, vegetarian, etc. And you also choose what aspect of it interests you the most. And you can choose animals or environment or health. And I'm wondering if they send different emails based off of those answers that you give, which I think would probably be a pretty smart and strategic thing to do. Yeah. You know, so so I selected that we were omnivores, and I selected that we were interested because of the animals. Um, maybe we'll do a second email and put it because of health or something. Because obviously, the, if you're interested in health, you'd probably want to include more health information. But 
maybe it's just for their research findings and for the poll that they do to sort of compare and contrast things. Because they also do a little poll that says, how many times a week do you eat chicken? And how many times a week do you eat turkey? And all that stuff. Are you screwing with their data, Andy? Putting that way on the force? Just one, just one guy, Paul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one email. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so so we in that episode we talked about the what, the relative success of Veganuary. We defined success by the fact that it was making a lot of vegans, and we got an email from someone who just goes by Stop Speciesism Now, who emailed in from Canada. So a lot of international emails coming in. Yeah. We love when people tell us where they're actually from. So include those in your emails, people. And uh, so this person r- brings up a lot of really great points. And we've actually had an email exchange back and forth, but I really want to bring this up on the show and, and get your thoughts on it. So, again, this is an email that is very long. We'll, we'll stop at a couple of points to, to go through it all. But I think that uh, even edited down a little bit, still you know, quite lengthy. But here we go. I am writing to express some concerns about Veganuary that I felt were omitted in your conversation about the January-focused initiative. As an animal liberation slash rights slash vegan activist, I find Veganuary problematic on several levels. I am not concerned so much with its effectiveness and the number of people going or staying vegan and felt you both did a great job dissecting that. The issues with Veganuary that need to be discussed by our community are issues surrounding how it frames veganism and undermines veganism as issue of justice. There's the obstacle that is always present with vegan challenges, which is that moral obligations don't typically come in the form of temporary lifestyle changes. To understand my reservation when I hear, try vegan for a month, think of civil rights activists telling slave owners to try, quote, slave-free January. What do you think of when you hear that? Do you think it sounds like a great initiative that is welcoming and more accessible to slave owners because it's easier to commit to one month free of slaves compared to a full year? Or do you think it sounds wrong to even propose a thing because abolition and the rejection of slavery is the bare minimum and an obligation we all have? If human rights shouldn't be advertised as one-month trials, then why should animal rights get different treatment? Isn't that speciesist? If it is speciesist, we haven't even overcome the very problem we're trying to solve, and this to me then indicates a larger problem within the vegan and animal rights movement. So there's a bunch more of this email, but I think uh, let's stop here just to sort of discuss this thing. I want to get at the heart of the the slave-free January thing. This is something that I see uh, people arguing against things like Meatless Monday and those sort of like I'll call them like lesser initiatives, things that don't aim specifically for full veganism. I think it's kind of interesting because to me, Veganuary is aiming for full veganism, but obviously just for a like specific period of time. Mm-hmm. As you know, as that email from from Claire sort of pointed out, that it's very ethics heavy and it makes it hard for you to feel like it's just a thirty day thing. Again, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get these emails and sort of weigh that out, but. I think uh, I want to hear your thoughts on this, Paul. But for me personally, when I hear the comparison to things like Slave Free January or, you know, like uh, people say, like, don't don't beat women Monday or, you know, whatever it is, um, aside from the, the, I assume, problematic comparisons between the two, I think that there are like practical differences between those two things where it's almost impossible to compare because I think that. Uh, you know, we're we're talking about with 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 speciesism, which 
primarily I would say, you know, the, the average person's engagement with that on a daily basis is the food that they eat. That's a purchasing choice that they make several times a day, generally speaking. And, and it's not, it's like normalized in society in a way that is not like these other issues that, that are being compared to. Mm-hmm. And it, it's almost like, I think, I think we can say that different tactics work for different issues and different movements at different points in their progression. I know that was like kind of vague, but I think that there is a, a, an importance in getting people to try vegan food, get them out of their headspace where they think they need it to survive or the food isn't good or that they couldn't do it or they're going to feel weak or whatever it might be. They're going to fall over dead in two days. And I think that there is a lot of value in tactics that that get people to try new things and shake it up. And as we, as we always say, Paul, it often starts with the food for a lot of people. And even, even the people that go vegan or like plant-based for health reasons, we do see some of those people that because of the fact that they're eating for their own health, they're then more open when an ethical message does come along. So I think that you can't, in my in my estimation, I don't think that you can really compare those two things. And while I understand why that comparison is being made, because it's like, yes, of course, if we believe something is the ethical thing to do, why would we advocate for anything less than what is the the ideal situation to remedy that, which is everyone go vegan right now? I, I don't I don't think that like we need different tactics. What do, you, what do you think, Paul? No, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think it would be I, – I guess I just think it's it's unrealistic to expect everyone to just go vegan right now and we kind of have to take that into consideration. And to, to kind of expand on what you were saying about we use different tactics along our progression, I do think that as vegan – as we gain – more of a percentage in the population, like as we become 10% and then 15% and 20%. And and I feel like there will be, there will be a point when even if we aren't, even if vegans aren't the majority of the population, there will be enough vegans that it will just kind of tip the scale and, and it will, it, it will be able to use some of these more pressuring tactics to be like, like, this is what, like you should be doing this now and that'll work more because there will be a different tone in in our culture and our society that says that this is something that is possible to to be happening yeah i i think to be fair to stop speciesism now i i don't think that they realistically think that we can just say everyone goes the whole world goes vegan right now i think they're still advocating for you know, comprehensive vegan education and they realize it's a gradual process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I do also think you might've said this, Andy, I do also think an important feature of Veganuary is that it, it, from, from what we saw and from what a couple people have said, it's like, it, it does seem to have the tone of like, yes, it's saying do this for 30 days, but then it's like, it's pressuring you to to make this into a lifelong thing, it, it it feels much less to me like a like a diet where it's like do this for twenty days and you'll lose this many pounds. It's it feels much less like that and more like try this for thirty days, and then after thirty days we're gonna try to get you to continue doing it. And I think that's an important distinction where it's like it's it's not 
something that you're just kind of going to do and then give up. That's never the, from the program standpoint, that's never the, the intention of it. And I think that that's an important distinction as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's 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 almost kind of like this. Maybe it's maybe some people would see it as a bait and switch kind of thing, where it's like try this for thirty days. It's a New Year's resolution. Actually, we're going to try and get you to do it for life. Yeah. I don't know if some people would feel like tricked by that or, or whatever it might be, but I think that if it is something that it is saying, hey, try this thing for 30 days, and while they do it, they they pump you full of the ethics information and and give you more reasons to keep doing it, Yeah, maybe that is why they, they seem to be able to report such high rates of people that, that do it and then stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. So let's let's continue, and and this is the longest section of the email, and maybe Paul and I will bounce back and forth in our reading of this section, but uh, kick it off, Paul. What I think is even more problematic, however, is the way Veganuary frames veganism. That is, Veganuary frames veganism as a human-centric dietary decision and not an obligation we have to non-human animals. Look at the messaging from their why section. There are so many reasons people decide to try vegan. For most, a love of animals is the catalyst. Some people want to feel better about themselves and the impact they make on the world. Others would like to set themselves a challenge, and many combine Veganuary with their New Year's resolutions, and see trying vegan as the healthiest start to the year. Whatever your reason, we're here to support you. So try vegan for a month and discover a whole new world of taste and flavor. We guarantee that by the end of January, you'll feel fantastic. Uh, let's, let's actually pause there. How do you feel about that messaging? I get what they're trying to do. I also I totally get what the 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 emailer is saying in and that's like it's putting the focus completely on the the people, the humans. I I do think in this case though that is a good tech that's a good way to get people to try this and and like you said Andy it's it's almost like this it feels like this bait and switch type thing where they're making this seem as appealing as possible to people. They're they're telling you like Oh, it's going to be so great. You're going to feel great and and you're going to feel great about what you're doing and and how much you're helping these animals and stuff like that. And like I don't I guess I don't I I don't see as many negatives in how this is being framed. I, like I I totally get that this is about the animals, but as a way to get people to do this, I think I I don't see it as as that bad. I think I fall more in line with the emailer on this one. Ooh. Like like reading that made me go, uh, you know, like we looked through the site, but I guess with like all the information coming in, it wasn't as apparent as when like one magnifying glass is put on this one little section. I guess the, we guarantee that by the end of January, you'll feel fantastic. It's like, I don't know about making the guarantees yeah. and you'll feel fantastic. I mean, you know, it could be like your conscience will feel fantastic or something like that. But, but yeah, I agree that this is, this very much frames it as what can, what do I get out of it? And it almost, yeah, it does make me f feel that there should be more focus on the animals in this aspect. All right. I, I, I still think it's, it's given that we know how much they pump into providing resources about the animal ethics and stuff like that. I do still kind of see it as like this is this is their hook to get people to get their claws into people. Yeah. Not vegan. 
<laughs> I don't know. All right, let's uh, let's move on here. The email continues. How could a non-vegan read that and not feel like veganism is about themselves, humans? Try veganism because you love animals. You want to feel better about your impact. You want a challenge. You want a healthy start to the year. Guarantee that you will feel better than ever. This frames veganism in a way that makes us lose the debate. If the emphasis is on the victims, people can at least begin to understand the issue is one of justice. People can't join our social justice movement if they don't know we're having one, and there's no chance non-vegans reading that will consider veganism as a legitimate issue of oppression. What is the message, then, that is sent to the thousands who see Veganuary and do not participate or try and ultimately revert to consuming non-human animals? The message is that veganism is not for them. And this is a perfectly reasonable conclusion if these issues are framed from the perspective of the human consumer and not the victim non-human animal. Perhaps the human consumer does not care about their health or having a challenging New Year's resolution. Perhaps they never have been an animal lover. For this individual, there is no compelling reason to try veganism according to Veganuary, and they join a growing segment of society that view veganism as a diet or lifestyle for some, but not for them. And this will be one more person who will become angered and resist vegans and animal rights activists for, quote, forcing their dietary lifestyle preferences on others. As vegans, we often shake our heads at non-vegans who proudly proclaim bacon as a reason to not be vegan. We ridicule them, wondering how on earth they can justify the suffering of another being merely for their own pleasure. But are we not to blame for their reaction? Have we not communicated the message to them that this is not about the non-human animal victim, but about them? If their only exposure to veganism is a laundry list of benefits for themselves, it is no wonder that they do not have the victim in mind when confronted with other advocacy telling them to go vegan. Our culture does not view non-human animals as victims and their lives as an inherent right. They see how veganism will affect them, not how it will affect the victim non-human animal. The frequent excuses that I could never give up cheese, I love meat, I've never been an animal lover, are all the result of our failure as advocates to frame the issue in a way that does the victims justice. Veganuary reinforces this warped human-centric view, framing veganism from the oppressor's perspective, ignoring the victim. All right, Paul, what do you think? I don't know if I agree with some of that. I like I I totally get what what the the email are saying, but I don't know if I agree that like those responses or those attitudes that a lot of non-vegans have are the result of vegan advocacy and the type of vegan advocacy. But does it does it not reinforce those existing attitudes? Does it like it doesn't challenge those attitudes? But what would be what would be the thing that challenges the attitudes? Because if someone, if you say to someone, you should go vegan because these animals are suffering. Like, I feel like any of those responses would, would nullify that any of those common responses, like it, like someone said, but this tastes good. Like, I, I feel like, I, I guess my point is I don't, I don't, I don't get what the way to frame what the way to frame the issue would be that would tackle all of these typical responses that we get or that would that would not where someone couldn't just respond oh but i'm not really an an animal lover or someone would say would also say like someone could say oh you should you should go vegan because animals are suffering and because it's you know quote the right thing to do and someone could say 
oh, well, but what about my, my health and stuff like that? Like, I feel like someone just because we frame it in a way that, and, and again, it's like, I don't disagree that this is the way that it, it, you know, this would be the most, you know, quote, fair way to do it for, in terms of like for the animals. But I don't think that it's necessarily the only way that has to be done because I don't think it's the the only way we're going to get people to try being vegan or if it's even the most effective way that we're going to get to try being to to try to get people being vegan because I don't because personally I don't think it necessarily matters why the person tries to be vegan so long as they stick with it hopefully like if 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 veganuary is the thing that got someone to stay vegan I don't think that that's different than someone coming up to them and saying, hey, you should be vegan because the animals are suffering and that's wrong. And they said, you're right, I'm going to go vegan. Like the end result is still the same. And an animal doesn't doesn't know one way or the other why that person went vegan. Well, I think that this emailer would argue that the, the result is not the same regardless of, of how the person went vegan because the one – well, let me first answer your question of how, how could we phrase it that does address these things. I think that it, the key is in this email that essentially saying animals' lives are their inherent right and it's our moral obligation to not harm them or exploit them. But I don't think saying that means it's that... Not a, it's not a very sexy way to, to like advocate. But even beyond that, like why would saying that make someone not respond with, but I like eating bacon or but I'm going to become a weak vegan if I do that, so I'm not going to do it. I don't think that this person is saying that people won't respond with those things, but we're we're losing the debate when our initial framing is about, like, the human, because then then we're falling into their hands. We're, we're engaging that debate. But if we say animals' lives are their inherent right, and the person says, well, I love bacon— you're like, well, that's irrelevant to the fact that an animal loves that an animal's right is their life and that we have no right to take that life and it's our moral obligation. So, you know, your mere palate pleasure is of no consequence to this debate because clearly the animal's life outweighs your palate pleasure. And I do think that that will that will break through to many people, but I don't I think there's a large subset of the population where that wouldn't be effective to them. And, and they're not going to like, we, if, if, if we can't get many people to empathize with the struggles of other humans, like I, I, I feel like we're going to have a hard time on the mere basis of like, Hey, these animals are suffering. So you should do this thing. I think that's not going to be the thing that gets everyone to go vegan or gets a lot of people to go vegan. Well, I think, I think we need to, I I know you say this as well, so I don't, I know this isn't what you're saying necessarily, but I think we need to abandon the idea that there's one message that's going to reach everyone. But, but I don't think, but then like, but that's kind of, isn't that what this email, the point of this email is there is only one way we should be framing this. Well, I think that, I mean, I don't think this email is saying there's like one slogan or one phrasing, but I think that, that it's it's pointing out, an, I think, an important thing, which is how we frame this is important. And I don't think this person would say, you can't talk about the fact that you're not going to kill over and die after being vegan for three days. And 
that, you know, that you can't talk about, maybe you'll feel good and, and that, you know, it's good for the environment or whatever it might be, but that it's important that we always sort of be sure to include the underlying reason why it's important to go vegan so that we're not losing the bait, the debate before it even starts. You know, like essentially if we like this person saying, if we just make it about human needs, then it's valid to debate that your love of bacon outweighs an animal's life. But if we just start from start from a position that's saying an animal's life is is a worthy thing and we need to weigh it out like uh, accordingly, then then so I mean, someone can say yes, but bacon, though. But but it's like not allowing them the position to say, well, it's it's actually legitimate for you to argue that thing. But this isn't like we're not being this isn't debate club. We're not being. Yes, we've won this debate logically, but the majority of people don't care about that. But will they ever care about it if we don't include that in our framing device? Well, I I mean, I guess my point is like, I don't think I feel like our point, like the the point shouldn't be winning the debate. It should be getting this person to consider doing this thing. I okay, so I am I am using the term winning the debate, but I don't think that it's about winning debates. But I think that like we're we're losing. I think this person is saying we're losing before we even start if we frame it in terms of human centric needs. But what are we losing? Because if Veganuary is getting people to go vegan, what's the, what are we losing? All right, so so this was the question that I was about to answer before I went off on this tangent that. They're kind of saying that looking at it just in terms of how many people go and stay vegan is not necessarily the best metric for for gauging the success of these programs because you might get someone to go and stay vegan and eat vegan, but you're not challenging the norms of society. You're not challenging society's perception of the worth and ethical value of an animal. And so... So so getting a bunch of people to eat vegan doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to go to a rodeo. It doesn't mean they're not going to buy, like, leather shoes, for instance. And, again, those things could, could come along, of course. But, it, it you know, like, that essentially, you know, maybe this person would say it'd be better to accept less people that are eating vegan but that are, that are like, more ethically committed to this cause – than it would be to get a bunch of people that are just sort of like plant-based because they're doing it for their own health. I don't know if I agree with which, that. Which I know, I know what you're going to say, Paul, but like, <laughs> it doesn't matter to the animals. I feel like as I'm attempting to explain it there, I'm like, I'm on team Paul for a second, <laughs> you know, but I feel like uh, maybe I'm not articulating as well as this person that emailed in. I guess where I fall on this is I think that there's a lot of really good points in this email and I think it's important to consider this in our framing perspective. Would it have been that hard for Veganuary to throw in a few lines about, you know, how it, you're part of a social justice movement and it's, it's like, you know, in animals, it's our ethical obligation or whatever it is. I know that sounds like very like authoritarian and like rigid and it's not like, hey, let's have fun. Let's have a New Year's resolution, man. Like, like I get that, <laughs> but I feel like there's probably ways that they could, that they could insert that message so it's not just the conclusion of you're going to feel great at the end of the month. But we don't know if they aren't inserting that message either. Well, from from the uh, the why the section that we've just been read. Yeah, but that's just one section. That's not necessarily these emails that. But there's people that don't sign up. They just peruse through the web page. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think Veganuary is going to be 
it's not going to be everything, you know, it's, it, there's no, there's no, there's no perfect entity out there. Not that we shouldn't be striving for it, but I don't know. I just feel like it's doing, it is doing a lot of good. And, and I do definitely want to clarify that I would not be as gung ho about Veganuary if it was not so obviously promoting these ethical issues. Like if it was just, if it was just the, the health issues and even if it threw in like a little bit of animal stuff, like, like I would be, I would not be as defending of it as I am how it is now, which is what I do. What I do believe is that it, it, it does promote the animal ethics heavily for, for something that is so mainstream, the word I'll use for something that's so popular I'm glad at how much it's promoting the animal ethics because I don't think that many besides like documentaries, which like besides, you know, like what the health or something that's gotten onto Netflix or that's gotten like Oakjaw or something like that, that where it's gotten popularity. Like I can't think of too many mainstream things promoting veganism that are tying in the, the ethics but why miss an opportunity to include the animal ethics part like they did in the why section? Like I get that there's no perfect message and veganuary can't be everything to everyone. But when you have a section about the why, why not include this very important aspect of the why? Some would say the central aspect of the why. Well, is there, is there nothing about animals in the why? Cause it does say, for most, a love of animals is the catalyst. Yeah, but but this email is saying, well, what if I'm not an animal lover? And I think we've talked about that before. Like, when you say I love animals too much to eat them, someone else could be like, that's fine. I don't love animals. Like, obviously, that works for a lot of people. They can most people probably consider themselves animal lovers. But I know I have friends that are vegan advocates that don't really give a crap about dogs, and it blows my mind that they're they're like hardcore dedicated to helping farmed animals but they don't become overcome with emotions of joy when they see a dog on the street you know (laughs) like they're not animal lovers they just realize that it's the ethical thing to do i don't know i I feel like i almost feel like we are over critiquing this section that's like just like it's a hook for people it is trying to hook people and this is how it's chosen to do the hook for people it's like i don't feel like just this this one why section is necessarily representative of veganuary as a whole because like you said Andy if if the why section said because you shouldn't give a crap about your own feelings and and it's and like you should just you know do this for the animals that's not going to hook people and even mm-hmm. if that is the thing that that is the important part of veganism which i do agree with and and I do hope that there are many people that that come away from Veganuary with that messaging. I don't necessarily think that the hook has to be has to have all of those things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a fair point. Again, it just feels like why not include it? But I think that I, I agree that if if their goal is to be like, hey, do this thing that's good for that's going to be good for you and make you feel good, and they're like, ha, actually got you. It's about the animals. I don't I don't know if I'm that mad about that tactic, but again, I think that this emailer makes some really great points in regards to 
like we could do we could all do a better job of keeping the animals front and center in these things doesn't mean giving up all other tools in the toolbox but that it is it's an important thing and again people won't know they're joining a social justice movement if they don't know that one is happening I, but in in a in like a, a vegan world or in one in which veganism is steadily becoming more popular which i feel like we might not be you know maybe we're a couple decades away from that uh-huh not everyone is going to be a vegan advocate or a vegan activist there will be many people who are just vegan not with that attitude paul <laughs> but like what if that's what veganuary is doing is it's like it's just getting people to be vegan that don't maybe necessarily want to be involved in vegan activism yeah but but they're gonna be the people that will talk to their friends and family about veganism even if it's not from an activist perspective but if they are missing out on the opportunity to let people know that it's about ethical obligation to animals is that not bad but they're but aren't they influencing people merely by being the vegan with with these because they are still getting the animal messaging in the in the program itself it seems pretty heavily they're getting the animal messaging from the the other the other email said it's hard not to stick with it because of all that said about animal cruelty that it makes you aware of yeah i mean fair point paul like i guess like i think it's like not everyone that becomes vegan has to become a an a super active activist because even though that I like I I would want that I think it's unrealistic and and as more and more of the population becomes vegan like there will be I almost feel like less of a need for every single person to become a vegan activist because over time it'll just become the societal norm and then when everyone becomes vegan, there won't need to be any vegan activists anymore. No, but like, I feel like you could extend that and say, not everyone needs to be an anti murder activist, but it is important for everyone to understand why murder is generally speaking an unethical thing to do. Yes. And I think veganuary does a good job of explaining <laughs> why eating animals is a bad thing to do. Given the other email that we got. Yeah. All right, Paul. Well, I think... <laughs> no, Andy, have... F you, man. We're continuing this debate for 30 <laughs> more minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that email from Claire certainly makes me feel a lot more positive about it. I, I Again, I think that in Speciesism Now from Canada has a lot of really good points, but I think that the email from Claire makes me feel more comfortable with supporting Veganuary. I also, like, I was taking a firm stance against that the second email but i also believe that they brought up a lot of good points <laughs> it's a little behind the scenes magic <laughs> that none of us really have any strong investment in any position <laughs> we didn't even plan that yeah that was that was andy was this our first fight you say that every time we have a fight call <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be like one of our signature catchphrases next to who knows i don't know <laughs> was this our first fight <laughs> but yeah that was that was a great that was a great email and that that definitely made both of us think about a lot of stuff so thank you stop speciesism now for sending that one in and thank you to everyone else for sending in all of their emails this was a this was a good mailbag episode andy 
Yeah, and we got we got even more emails that we uh, didn't get to include in this one. You know, we try to curate a good selection of, of various types of questions and try to get things we haven't talked about before, but we can never get to them all. So maybe we'll answer a few in the coming episodes or save them for the next mailbag. But definitely, please keep them coming. You can, regardless of where we are in the show cycle, you can always send us an email to thebeardvegans at gmail.com with, with your question, comment, or concern. Yeah, we we get amazing emails like this one from Stop Speciesism Now that are paragraphs long and very thought-provoking. And then we just get really nice emails that are very encouraging and people talking about where we fit into their lives. And we we love both ends of the spectrum. So, so keep them coming. Yeah, definitely. Thank you again for everyone who sent stuff in. So, Andy, what do you got coming up? This weekend, Paul, Cleveland Veg Fest in Cleveland, Ohio. That is May 5th, 2018. <laughs> june 2nd we're both going to be pretty busy on that day you're going to be at the lancaster veg fest in lancaster pennsylvania oh yeah i'll be at the vegandale food and drink fest in houston texas oh, wish uh, i could be there i know june 9th you, paul you're going to be at the philly veg fest pennsylvania oh yeah philadelphia pennsylvania <laughs> of course uh june 10th i'll be at the Asheville vegan fest Asheville, north carolina June 16th, I'll be at the Tri-State Veg Fest in Edison, New Jersey. And then June 30th, I'll be back out in Chicago at the Vegandale Food and Drink Fest that's happening there. And uh, at all of those events, you can find me or Paul behind the Compassion Company table. This is my little vegan clothing line there. Come say what's up, Beardo. We'll hook you up with a button and a sticker. Get your name for a shout-out on the podcast. And if you want all those dates, deeds, and links, just go to CompassionCo.com. It's CompassionCo.com and click on the Events tab. And I got I got stuff booked all the way out till November, so check it out. <laughs> cool, uh, Paul. So so as I said, we had those two emails and then one physical piece of mail. And uh, let me let me get it out. <laughs> mm. There it is. There it is. Uh, interesting. It's in Comic Sans font. <laughs> uh, uh, it says. Let me get my reading glasses here. It's a cool place, and they say it gets colder. (laughs) You're bundled up now. Wait till you get older. But the meteor man begs to differ, judging by the following seven words. We are the Bearded Vegan, signing off. Totally lost it. <laughs> it's gone. Out my head. Eshkeel O'Neill Diamond. Mm. Nice, right? Yeah. If that's your jam, head over, you know. Yeah. I feel like I'm being so clunky right now, Paul. <laughs> this one's coming to us via our email, thebeardvegans at gmail.com, from Deep P, 
who asked. This is, I'm assuming, specifically for oh, Andy. You know what? I think it was Dean P. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this next one. <laughs> <laughs> generally speaking have to get rid of something else so it really makes me evaluate the importance of various things in my lives in my lives my lives <laughs> my lives <laughs> <laughs> great with that said uh to answer this question question <laughs> this quesadilla i find veganuary problematic on several letter on several letter Jared Lettuce. <laughs>